we are starting a series looking at one of the creeds called the Apostles' Creed. How many of you, thank you, Andy, how many of you know the Apostles' Creed? Put your hand up if you do. Off by heart. None of you. Okay. Okay. Great. That's why I'm speaking about it. As people come towards this church and community, I I often get asked this question. They kind of look at me, and then people suspiciously look at me, and it's almost slightly accurate. They're like, you're the vineyard. You're like, yes, that's right. What, What is it that you believe? That's kind of the first thing. And then often it kind of is the wine involved. And, and at that point, I'm like, actually, it's grape juice. And they kind of look at me, I knew it. I knew it. Um, and the question that they're off, often asking is, are you really a bunch of weirdos? And deep down, that's the question. And the answer is, yes, absolutely. Um, just want to be clear about that. But so is everybody else, is the thing that I've come to realize. And I'm yet to find normal. I keep looking for it, but I haven't found it yet. And if you think you're normal, you're probably not. Now, and you might be reasonably asking the question, what is it exactly that you believe here? And here in the vineyard, we're what is known as orthodox Christians. What do I mean by the word orthodox? Well, the word orthodox is a composite word from two Greek words. The first, orthos, which means right or true, and doxa, which means belief. So right belief or true belief might be a way of thinking about it. According to Wikipedia, the well-known source, in the narrow sense, the term means conforming to the Christian faith as represented in the creeds of the early church. So when people come towards me and they often say, oh, do you know what, as the vineyard, what is it that you believe? And I would say, do you know what, we believe in the creeds. That might or might not answer their question. And at that point, sometimes we move on force from that. But we have a phrase in the vineyard, and it's called the main and the plain. The main and the plain, which is really this idea of trying to focus on the things that are of utmost importance. There are a lot of things as you delve into faith. The Bible talks about a whole load of different subjects. And the danger is sometimes that you can end up... I I studied theology at university for three years. It can get quite obscure... Do you know what I mean by that? As in, you end up down what I would call a rabbit hole, where you've gone off down somewhere, and then you've ended up in this kind of weird space over here, asking some very weird questions that aren't really that important. The main and the plain is really about, well, what, is, what are the fundamentals of our faith? What is it that we stand on? What is it that we rest our hope in? What is it that we believe? What is it that Christians believe? Are there any such things, you know, as the world's gone on, you know, and different branches have come off? What is it that, is there something that unites the church or not? And so um, the creeds of the early church were summaries of the most important things that Christians believe. Now, the Apostles' Creed is perhaps the best known of those. And you would have thought, because it's called the Apostles' Creed, it was written by the Apostles. It actually wasn't. But it really contained a summary of the Apostles' teaching. It went through a period of development for a couple of hundred years after after Jesus. And then around the 300s, it came into kind of its final form. And what they were trying to do during this time is to say, what is it that the church can agree on is the absolute fundamentals of the faith? And so then what happened is, because baptism was a really 
is still a big deal today and was a massive deal in the early church because when somebody was getting baptized, they're saying, I'm renouncing this way of life, and they would become a part of the Christian church and say, I'm going to follow a Jesus. What they often did at the same time is that they would use the creed, the Apostles' Creed, as their spiritual formation process. It would be effectively saying, do you know what, these are the things that I believe. Can we agree that we stand on these things? So... Really coming back down to, I would say that this is the main and the plane of our faith. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks. It's not always going to be me, but a group of us are going to be teaching through the Apostles' Creed. So, let me just start by reading it so that you are aware of what we are talking about. And you can go, ah, oh, okay. So, should come up behind me. It says this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. It's going to be a fun week. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. They're pretty amazing words. And right out of the gate, I want to be really clear, because this is re really important, that I'm not here, and I have no intention of preaching the creed to you. I'm here to use the creed to teach the Bible. That is really fundamentally important. Creeds do not hold any authority in and of themselves, but rather they point outside of themselves to the ultimate word of God, the ultimate authority, the word of God. Maybe this might be a helpful illustration. A couple of nights ago, I was walking back and there was, the moon was out. You know when the moon's just beautiful and you just see it, and I, I was was just saw it through some trees. And I was like, oh, wow, that's absolutely stunning. Now, the moon has no light of its own, but it tells me that there's a light out there. The sun is casting out radiating heat and light that hits the surface of the moon and reflects it to us so that we look up and we're like, oh, wow, that's absolutely amazing. Well, the creed is reflecting the light of the word of God. The creed has no authority in and of itself, and I would never preach it like it does, but rather it points back to the authority of the word of God. And it's going to be helpful to keep that in our heads at all times. Secondly, the creed's historic use has been just twofold, just really quickly. The first is around to correct error. So it's really, people can end up, if you're not careful, and you can see this sometimes with communities, they end up going right down over here. It's like, what, what is it that you're believing? So they would use this to, you know, to hold true. And then the second thing is around spiritual formation, which I've already mentioned. So let's get started. I believe in God. That's the starting point of the creed. So what is a person saying when they say, I believe in God? Well, I think what they're saying is, I believe means I think certain things are true. This is what I think is true. We live in a society where so many people will concede that there are lots of elements of Christianity that might well be worthwhile. They're like, they might sit down with you and they're like, oh, do you know what? I, I like the way that you, you love people. I, 
Um, I like the way that um, the Christian faith often helps you to be charitable, you know, that you go beyond. I like the way that, that the church often is in places serving people. It's often in the darkest places in a city being there helping people, a bit like we talked about with the van. Um, I like that the Christian faith helps, often helps people with addictions, people that are struggling in addiction. That's also a place where it can be seen. People will concede that the Christian faith brings comfort when somebody dies, often. I'll be like, actually, in a time of moment of death, that's when faith becomes important. What about when um, a whole community or society goes through grief about something? When there's a national moment of mourning, who is it that stares, stands in that moment and has a narrative? It's the Christian faith that suddenly comes up. People go, oh, I'm praying. Suddenly a language comes in because there is no other language apart from that at the moment. So lots of people turn to God or the church for comfort in times of loss. What people without faith sometimes balk at is the assertion that God is a real person who expects those he created to follow him. They don't mind the concept of it, but when you, when you bring it down and you start to say, I believe in God, and then all of these things about God, then suddenly it becomes this issue. It takes courage in many circles to say, um, to say, do you know what? Not only is my Christian faith helpful, not only does it provide comfort and strength and a community and a code of morals, but I believe what I believe about God is true. I talked about this in the truth series at the beginning of the year. What is truth? How does that look? Christians are saying, do you know what? I believe that the declarations of faith in the Apostles' Creed, the declarations made of the faith in the Bible, are true descriptions of reality the way it actually is. So that's what we're saying. Secondly, I believe means that I trust. When the creed says, I believe in God, I think what it's saying is, I have confidence in God. I believe in God means I have confidence in God. Faith is more than just some idea in your head. Christian faith involves your heart. It involves our wholehearted response to him. When we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, what we are saying is, I rest my whole weight upon this. This is not just this nice idea. It's like my whole foundation of my life is resting upon this. The substance of my hope rests on this. I have invested my present, my past, and my future into this. It isn't just believing, it's actually trusting with my time, my energy, my money, my relationships, with everything that I am. I stand on this. So when the Christian church says these words together, I don't know whether you've been there when you've stood. We are not generally a people of great liturgy. Do you know what I mean? Within the vineyard, we're not known for our liturgy. But when the church communally stands up and says to something together and they're saying, we are standing on this foundation, there is incredible power in that. Why? Because it's saying, do you know, I say no to the narratives of this world. There are so many storylines going around that people would say, and it's saying, this is the storyline that I stand on. This is where my hope is placed. This is in whom my hope is found. Can you see that's a, that's a moment of, it's like a declaration. Sometimes you're declaring something. It's like, this is who we are. This is what we're united around. This is the people of God. So during this series, there will be times when we stand up and we say that this, this together. But I don't want people to have to do this all because sometimes the problem with the liturgy is you just get into the habit of saying the same thing, that it loses its meaning. It's like, oh yeah, we trot through something for people that had to say the Lord's Prayer every day as part of their school routine. Sometimes you can say the Lord's Prayer without realizing the power in the Lord's Prayer. 
you could say this creed without realizing that there's the power in it as well. So I think it's really, really powerful. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's all that I'm looking at today. You'll be pleased. I'm not going to take on the whole thing. We would be here a while. It's a grand start, isn't it? It's an epic start. Woven throughout the creed is Trinitarian understanding of God. What do I mean by Trinitarian understanding of God? Christianity alone among all the world faiths teaches that God is triune. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity means that God is in essence relational. That's the thing that blows me away when I think about the Trinity. I sit there going, in the heart of God, in the personhood of God, is relationship. C.S. Lewis says this in The Good Affection. He says this, In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great foundation of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. What we see in the Trinity in the Godhead is a dance. That's how I love to explain it. Because when people are trying to get their mind around, well, what is the Trinity? That's, that would be the explanation that I most often use. Do you know what? It's this, this dance going, in, going on between the persons. Of the, and right in the center of that is community. It's beautiful, it's relational, it's relationship. So when people say God is love, I think that they mean, well, that's extremely important or that God really wants us to love. But in the Christian conception, God really has love as his essence. Community is in the heart of God. However, each part of the Godhead is distinct. So look with me in Ephesians 3, 14 to 17. What I want you to notice is as I read these verses is that all of the different parts of the Godhead are mentioned. Verse 14, it says this, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul's actually just preceding this passage. He's just talking about the need for grace. He's talking about, you know what, even though I've messed up more than anybody, the grace of God is so absolutely incredible. And so, in front of this passage is grace. And then he goes on, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on on earth derives its name. Why is that? Because he's the creator God. All things come from him. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. There it is. In your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see the triune nature of God at work. Today, however, rather than going down a massive thing into the Trinity, I want to concentrate on the Father. So that's what I want to look at today. Because when we use the word Father, an incredible array of different emotions go off in the room. With that very word Father, it's like bang. These emotions come to the surface surface generally caused by our relationship to our earthly fathers it's just true so the word father has so many different connotations some of them are great some of them are really good security love acceptance strength presence warmth friendship that might have been your experience of your earthly father 
And so suddenly when you think about Father, you think, oh, yes. For others of you, however, mentioning the word Father brings up a whole load of different emotions and feelings. Even as I'm talking about the Father Almighty, you have an image of who God is because I'm using that word Father. Things like absence, it's like he was absent, he wasn't there. Control, disappointment. When I think about Father, I think passivity, apathetic, in some horrible moments, maybe even abuse, whether that's emotional or physical. So when we're using this word father, it has a lot going on. There are many people that have been wounded by their fathers. I would go as far to saying that there is a father wound in our culture, in the heart of our culture right now, particularly the tragic breakdown of, of family life has meant that for so many, actually, their father is absent. It's not present. So, coming back to talking about God as father, when I start talking about this, many would find it very hard indeed to know God as father. That concept is very difficult. At best, people might say, do you know what, I really relate to Jesus. I... I I get Jesus, I'm, I'm with you with Jesus, yes. But they fail to enjoy what Jesus came to achieve, which is an eternal communion with their divine dad. And it makes complete sense, doesn't it? If you've been let down by your father, then there will be a lasting mistrust of fathers within your heart. If you then commit your life to Jesus, you will find it easier to relate to the second person of the, second person of the Trinity than the first person of the Trinity. So for many people, when, when I'm talking about this, and you will know how people relate by the way that they pray. That will give you, so for some people, they would just pray to Jesus. It could be, people will often move to one of the persons of the Trinity and pray predominantly to that. So you'll see that in church cultures as well. You go into some churches, they would very much be a church that prays to the Father. Actually, a lot of the newer churches generally would focus more on Jesus, interestingly. Um, and if you have a wound, a father wound, you will always have a worry that if you entrust yourself to your heavenly father, history will repeat itself and he will let you down as well. I want to take a moment today, and I know I've got long, but I want to show you how good the father is and what his true nature is like. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, we see Jesus teaching us how to pray. Again, I'm not necessarily going to be talking about new things today. But just because I'm not talking about new things, it doesn't mean that it's gone into our hearts. The very, very beginning of the prayer, he begins with, Our Father in heaven. Before anything else, Jesus encourages his apprentices, his disciples, his followers to address God as their heavenly Father. So with this brief opening address, Jesus opens up a whole new landscape. A whole new vista of revelation is brought into view when Jesus does this. Because no longer is God the remote deity of so many religions, the distant creator who demands submission. He is now the loving father of Jesus of Nazareth who invites us into the everlasting arms of love. So in these four words, our father in heaven... A whole new God image lies before us, like this beautiful portrait. 
God is our father. God is our, you know, and people use different words for dad, don't they? God is our father. Some people, God is our papa. God is our dad. God is our daddy. And he loves us dearly. For some of you, you're like, oh, I really don't mind that word. I really struggle with one of the other words that you've used. In some cultures, the word father may come across as too formal. Abba that may therefore best be translated or as dad. If a child falls over in a street in Israel and hurts their knee, he's, he or she's likely to cry out one of these two things. Abba, which means daddy, or Imma, which means mummy. Abba, Abba father, denotes a close, a very intimate relationship, as does Imma. So the, word, the use of the word Abba in the opening statement of the Lord's Prayer is critical and indeed ra- absolutely radical. It would have surprised... It would have surprised the disciples at the time as Jesus started to pray in this way. Because first of all, it would would have surprised them that he started to pray in Aramaic. He didn't choose to use the sacred prayer language of the religious pious people of his day. That language was Hebrew. He used everyday Aramaic. And this in itself tells you a great deal. It signifies that Jesus saw prayer as an everyday act of communication. So Jesus took it out of this place and he said, I want to pray in a different way. I want to show you how to pray differently. Secondly, Jesus chose to use the Aramaic word Abba in addressing God. So what Jesus was doing was distinctive and unusual, even if it wasn't absolutely without precedent in Judaism. He was teaching the disciples to address the God who created the universe as their Abba. William Barclay once wrote this. He said, Jesus is teaching his disciples that we come to God with the simple trust and confidence with which a little child comes to a father whom he knows and loves and trusts. That's what it feels like to come to the father. Intimate and relational language. Secondly, Abba points to an infinite father. So we've got an intimate father and then we've got an infinite father. Jesus qualifies the word Abba with the words in heaven. This father is a heavenly father. He's not an earthly father. We could use the word almighty, which is in the creeds here. It's another way of thinking about the father. Because in fact, earthly fathers fall so far short of this heavenly father. We are not to make this father in the image of our fathers. He is far greater. He is in fact perfect. He is majestic. He's a omnipotent, all of these things. He's wholly other. He's absolutely incredible. Our father is the king of kings and the king of kings is our father. The word Abba, therefore, does not just denote relationship. It also denotes respect. The father that we come to in prayer is no imperfect earthbound father. He is the everlasting father who reigns on the throne of heaven. Like the, like the Aslan that we see in um, C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories, he's not just affectionate like a kitten, he's powerful like a thunderstorm. So what does it mean that our father is in heaven? And this is really around the awe. And I took this from the Father's House Trust. These are not my words. It says this. It means that there's no one bigger than our dad. That our dad rules. He flung stars into speckled space. 
He fashioned the blazing sun and deep lagoons of cloud and cluster. He created the planets, the constellations, and the galaxies. He conceived the Milky Way, the Helix Nebula, and the Pleiades. He made bubbles and arcs, nebula and auras. He paints supernovas in effervescent colors and stellar jets of iridescent glory. He outthinks the physicist and he dazzles the theologian. He preoccupies the astronomer and inspires the poet with abundant wonder. He is beyond the reach of the Hubble telescope or the probing range of any orbiter. He is what Einstein called the superior reasoning power. And the Bible calls the father of heavenly lights. He is my dad and he is your dad, our dad, who is in heaven, the third heaven, who dwells in unapproachable light and who will one day make his home with us on this tiny dot that is earth. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? I didn't understand all the words, but generally I felt like the, the general direction of travel was good. Do you know what I mean? You're like, wow, I'm inspired. What does 17 of though, what does iridescent mean? But you know, and you're like, my point is, sometimes we can paint the father as being one or the other. Do you know what I mean? It's like he's, he's into it, you know, he's, a, he's a, just our friend, he, you know, he's down here. But actually, Dave talked about it last week in, in the communion, as there's always these things we have to hold the tension, that he's both and. And the awe of the Almighty, respect and relationship. We are not to domesticate God into a sentimental dad figure robbed of all of his royal glory. More, moreover, he combines the two qualities that all good fathers must have, authority and affection. He has authority in his capacity as the high king of heaven, and he has affection in that he's the very epitome of what a loving father should be. We must therefore approach this father with reverence as well as love. So when we think of the father heart of God, we must try to keep these two things in balance, affection and authority. Too much emphasis on his loving affection may fall us to call us into compromise. We may start believing the lie that he's such a gracious dad that we can do what we like. That nothing matters. But that's a grave error of judgment, one that will surely end in tears. Likewise, too much emphasis on his royal authority may cause us to fall into fear. We may up, end up thinking that God is like some of the toxic authority figures that have maybe abused us in our past, in our lives. This is also a great lie. There is a delicate relationship between these two things. So just finishing this, respect and relationship, authority and affection. So there's that going on, and that's very much a head thing. But I wanted to finish with this. I wanted to finish with what it feels like to be in relationship with him. How do you know in your heart that you are right with the Father? So it's all very well to talk about these two things, but suddenly it's like, okay, what does that feel like? And I've used this language, the Father's embrace. I just felt like it was a little phrase that the Lord gave me. The Father's embrace, that's what it feels like. If you move back in, into Luke 15, a story, a parable that many of you will know, perhaps the greatest story ever told. And it's the one of the father and his son. His son turns around to the father and just says, yeah, I want my inheritance now. And his dad, you can imagine, was absolutely gutted. The father was gutted at this moment. He was like, okay, you go and do it. The son goes off to the nearest town or city or whatever it is. 
and he lives life to the large with this huge sum of money, makes friends, spends a lot of money, and it, and it uses the phrase wild and reckless living, which always slightly amuses me. That phrase. But just, he basically parted really hard and he forgot about everything else apart from himself and he lived an incredibly selfish life at the heart of it. One day he turns around, he's not got any friends left, he's lost all of his money, and he's, he has this moment where he's kind of in amongst the pigs, just at the bottom. He's like, I've got nothing left, I've squandered it all. And he, think, he has this moment of revelation as he's kind of down there in the dirt, and he thinks, do you know what? Even my father's servants live better than this. And he takes this moment, he has this revelation, but it would have taken a, a moment of humility to go, do you know what, I'm actually going to go back to the Father. I'm going to go home. Because he has this moment of revelation, and then he starts on his way home. And then the rest of the story is that we see that moment is that the Father has been waiting. The Father's been waiting. He's been waiting for his, you know, he's been looking out day after day after day for his son to come home. And I, what I want, the feeling is, is what the embrace is like. The Father's embrace can you imagine what that would have felt like, the father's embrace, as the son comes home, humbled, desperate, broken, and the father, and I've read this story so many times, but it still absolutely moves me to my core, because the father says, it doesn't matter, and he runs towards his son. And imagine the son, slightly ashamed, just comes, and he nestles into the father's arms. The father stands there, and he embraces his son. And he doesn't say anything. He just hugs him. There isn't a telling off moment. There's just this moment of fulsome embrace. And then he kisses his son. And it talks about him kissing. He moves on from embrace to talking about him kissing the head of his son. And actually, in the tense that it was written in, it talks about this kissing being kind of a continuous present. It's not just one kiss. It's this ongoing kissing on the head. It's this overflow of affection from the father to the son. I have the beautiful thing of being a dad to three girls. And I have that moment where I go home at the end of every day. And I open the door. And there's just this shout. It's daddy! And there's literally a race on who's going to get there first. My eldest is just beginning to come out of this beautiful zone where I may no longer be the hero for that much longer. I'm not thinking it's going to stay forever. And, this, and they literally leap at me from wherever they're at. If they're halfway up their stairs, they just jump. It's like, whoa! And it's that moment where they kind of come in and you, you're like, ow, that hurt. No, and you embrace them. And for me, I have that moment where I can just kind of kiss them again and again and again on the head. Now, I know nothing of the Father's love. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is my love. This is human love. This is earthly love. That's what I feel like. So when you think about, what do you think that the Lord thinks about you? What do you think that the Father Almighty thinks about you when you come home? It's lavish. It's it's the father's embrace. And as I as I was in worship, I was given this another phrase that I felt was from the Lord is this undone by grace. We are undone. 
by the grace of God. That's what it is. So we have this father's embrace occurring. But grace, when truly given, is the most wonderful thing. So the father doesn't lecture the son. He, it's almost this moment of, you can almost just whisper, he's kissing the son, he's like, you're home. You're home. And I think that is the picture of what we are offered by the Father. What is it that the Father gives us? He gives us security. Deep, deep security of knowing that we are unconditionally loved. That as soon as we turn our face towards the Father, the Father's face is already turned towards us. He is already pursuing us. And we might have wandered far, and we put that in whatever way it is. And for some people, that's about coming to faith. They've never turned fully into the embrace of the Father. The Father's like, I'm waiting for you to come home. And that's a moment where we come to faith. But it's ongoing. It's not just this one moment of turning towards the Father. It is this life of turning towards the Father. The world will do everything within its to to drag you away from that loving embrace. But what is on offer is the Father's embrace. And he's just like, I'm here, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you. And you cannot outgive that. And it is a love that is so wholly other. It's like revelation. We get glimpses of it in this earth. When you think that, think about the thing that you most love and how deeply you love that. Yes, you do love. We, We get glimpses of that. But the Father's love is so much more. And that is how the Father wants to love us. We believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's the beginning of the creed. Why don't we stand?